Hello, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. As suggested by its title, An Empire on Which the Sun Never Set, this ninth episode is essentially the story of how in the in the first half of the 16th century, the Habsburgs rose to become, under the Emperor Charles V, the dominant power in Europe, and how Europe, embarking on an epic of global discovery, came to run the world for the next 500 years. In the last episode, we discussed how Europe's great cultural renaissance was helped on its way by the relative stability of the latter half of the 15th century. Of course, a period in which the continent's powers and potentates, shaken by the fall of Constantinople to the Ottomans, opted for cooperation rather than conflict, was too good to last, and came to a dramatic end in 1494 with the eruption into Italy of a French army led by King Charles VIII. Charles was done with consolidating his own kingdom and was now ready for more, specifically to assert his claim to the throne of Naples. Cast your mind back to the late 13th century and you may recall how Charles of Anjou, a younger brother of the French king, established a kingdom embracing southern Italy and Sicily but then lost Sicily to the Aragonese in the fallout from the Sicilian Vespers. His successors hung on in Naples until the mid-15th century, when Aragon took that as well. Now Charles VIII was determined to have it back for France. The expedition was not a success. His troops fought their way down the Italian peninsula to and into Naples without much difficulty. Two years earlier, Lorenzo de' Medici had died, and a Borgia Pope had been installed in Rome. The fragile edifice of cooperation between the big Italian cities was already tottering and collapsed under the impact of the French invasion. But disease devastated the French army at Naples and forced Charles to withdraw. The Aragonese reoccupied the throne of Naples. But Charles's expedition was not without its legacy. It introduced syphilis to an unprotected Italian population. This seems to have been a gift from the New World, brought back only a year or two earlier. Native American restitution for the smallpox, which Spanish conquistadors so liberally visited on them. The French invasion destabilised Florence, clearing the way for the mad monk Savonarola's reign of terror and cultural vandalism and it inaugurated some 70 years of Italian wars, in which Valois and Habsburgs fought each other for supremacy, periodically playing in the Spanish and the English, not to mention the Turks. The Habsburgs, you will recall, were in this period transitioning from important German family to sole owners of the Holy Roman Empire, and about half of Europe besides. Sleepyhead Frederick III had spent over four decades on the imperial throne and had made his son Maximilian co-ruler for his final years to ensure his succession. More, he had engineered Maximilian's marriage to the Burgundian heiress, Mary, whose early death in a writing accident gave Maximilian claim to a huge swathe of territory running from the Low Countries down to the Alps. Inevitably, the French disputed this claim, and rivalry between the two royal houses intensified. 
as Charles VIII persuaded the young Breton Duchess Anne, whom Maximilian had married by proxy after Mary's death, to renounce that arrangement and marry him instead, thus finally bringing Brittany within the Kingdom of France. As part of this manoeuvre, Charles also broke off his own engagement to Maximilian's daughter. Bad blood or what? Years of intermittent warfare duly followed, finally resolved by the Treaty of Senlis in 1493, under which France got Burgundy proper and Picardy, while Mary's territories in the Low Countries and Franche-Comté were confirmed as Habsburg domains. It was at this point that Charles VIII felt free to turn his attention to Italy. Given that Holy Roman Emperors had been overlords of northern Italy since the days of Charlemagne, the Habsburgs were never going to take French intervention lying down. The more so when Maximilian, deprived of Breton Anne as a successor to Burgundian Mary, took the Schwarzer heiress as his third wife, and thus added the Dukedom of Milan, that's the main power in Lombardy, to his family holdings. Charles's first Italian adventure may have fizzled out quickly, but it destabilised the peninsula and set the scene for further Valois-Habsburg conflict there in the next generations. For the Habsburgs, the next generation basically meant Maximilian's grandsons, Charles and Ferdinand. Maximilian's inspired matchmaking resulted in the throne of Spain falling to Charles in 1516, and those of Hungary and Bohemia to Ferdinand ten years later. Habsburg family lands now covered something like half the surface area of Europe. And that, of course, is not counting the imperial lands accruing to successive generations of Habsburgs on election as emperor. In Charles's case, the imperial title came to him on Maximilian's death in 1519, when bribery on an heroic scale secured his election in the face of determined challenges from Francis I, the new French king, and Henry VIII of England. Francis I, he reigned from 1515 to 1547, was a charismatic figure, ambitious, athletic, cultured, very much the new-style Renaissance prince. A particular coup was to persuade the ageing Leonardo to come and spend his final years on the Loire, where France's main contribution to the European cultural resurgence, that is to say the architecture of the splendid new chateau, was well underway. Francis even persuaded Leonardo to part with the Mona Lisa, a painting so dear to his heart that he had brought it with him. What Leonardo felt when Francis allegedly had the painting cut down to fit a frame of which he was particularly fond is not recorded. Francis's English contemporary, Henry VIII, was from much the same mould. Under the new Tudor dynasty, England was now beginning to count again, and Henry was ready to see what national advantage and personal glory could be extracted from intervening in the Habsburg-Valois rivalry. In 1513, he led an army into Flanders to join forces with Maximilian's daughter, Margaret. Uh, she acted as his regent in the Low Countries, and defeat the French at the Battle of the Spurs. During this campaign, he is entertained by Mary in Lille, and is glimpsed showing off on lute, harp, lyre, flute and horn, before dancing the night away 
like a stag, with one of Mary's ladies-in-waiting. Meanwhile, in accordance with now well-established practice, known as the Old Alliance, the Scots attempted to assist the French by invading England, only to suffer a crushing defeat and the death of King James IV on the battlefield of Flodden. Henry's audacious attempt to re-establish England in Europe by running for emperor in 1519 may have failed, but the next year he was back in France for two weeks of engagement with Francis I at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, part diplomacy, part competitive display. The two alpha males did not get on, and only Habsburg dominance would occasionally prompt England and France into cooperation over the coming decades. That dominance was embodied in the person of the new Emperor Charles V. Indeed, factor in the length of his reign, some four decades up to his retirement in 1556, and its extent, not just his vast family and imperial territories in Europe, but also the New World and the Spanish territories in the East Indies, truly an empire on which the sun never set. Throw in the absolute nature of much of his authority, and you have arguably the most powerful individual in history. The key, of course, was his succession to the Spanish throne in 1516, for already in 1494, just two years after Columbus's epic voyage, Spain and Portugal had divided the world between them. By the Treaty of Tordesillas, they agreed that anything lying to the east of a meridian, 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands, so roughly halfway across the North Atlantic, should be the exclusive province of Portugal, the new discoveries to the west should all be for Spain to exploit. The Portuguese had a fair sense of what they were getting out of this bargain. For a century now, they had been working their way down the west coast of Africa, picking up the Cape Verde Islands as a stepping stone on the way. Difficult winds and currents had made this a real challenge, taken up notably by Prince Henry the Navigator, the major sponsor of advances in ship design. The new caravel could sail much closer to the wind than the old square riggers, and navigation. Sailing out to Madeira and the Azores, the Portuguese discovered the clockwise circulation of trade winds in the North Atlantic. As they pushed below the equator, they ran into the same phenomenon, only counterclockwise in the South Atlantic. Progress south down the coast of Africa was achieved by abandoning the coast and venturing out into the ocean to exploit these wind patterns, a technique dubbed the Volta de Mar, or Sea Turn. There were slaves and gold to be picked up en route, but the big hope was to find a way round Africa into the Indian Ocean, and beyond to the Spice Islands, breaking the Arab-Venetian monopoly on the supply to Europe of gems, silks and spices, and the other riches of the Orient. And in 1488, Bartolomeu Diaz, had finally opened the door by successfully getting round the Cape of Good Hope, as it was rapidly rebranded after he had rather churlishly labelled it Cape of Storms. So by 1494, the Portuguese were more than ready to give the Spanish a free hand in the New World, 
In exchange for monopoly access to the vast southeastern treasure house they were about to sail into. Whether by accident or design, they also picked up a bonus territory, Brazil. The Atlantic does not run straight north-south, so the southwards extension of that meridian line down the middle of the North Atlantic left the eastern bulge of the South American continent in the Portuguese hemisphere. So Tordesillas explains why Portuguese is spoken in Brazil, while the rest of South and Central America speaks Spanish. For Spain, by contrast, Tordesillas was a bit of a brand-tub lucky dip. Had Columbus reached the eastern shores of Asia, or bumped into a new continent? If the latter, what would it have to offer? Not much, on first impression. And was the dream of a westabout route to the Orient still viable? Explorations up and down the America's east coast established in fairly short order that Columbus had hit on a major freestanding obstacle. A conclusion confirmed in 1513 when the Spanish explorer Balboa crossed the Isthmus of Panama and looked out on the expanse of the Pacific. So Keats was taking poetic liberties when he compares the experience of, on first looking into Chapman's Homer, with Cortez's wild surmise as silent upon a peak in Darien he gazed upon the Pacific. P.G. Wodehouse records that shortly after the publication of one of his novels, alluding to the Cortez moment, he received an anonymous letter containing the words, You big stiff, it wasn't Cortez, it was Balboa. But questions about the utility of the new continent were soon answered by Cortez and his fellow conquistador Pizarro, who set out in 1519 and 1530 respectively, to plunder the Aztec and Inca empires and establish Spanish control of mines from which almost uncountable quantities of bullion would flow in the decades ahead. Which left the question of the viability of trans-Pacific trade. Sponsored by Charles V, the Portuguese Magellan departed Seville in 1519 with five ships, optimistically called the Fleet of the Moluccas, that is to say, the Spice Islands, which had been confirmed by the Portuguese just a few years before to lie just west of New Guinea, and to be the world's exclusive source of cloves, mace and nutmeg. Despite many hazards, including mutiny, Magellan worked his way round the bottom of South America into the Pacific, and made it across to the Philippines, where he met his death, intervening in a local skirmish. Juan Elcano took over command of the remaining two ships, called at the Moluccas to load up with spices, and completed the first circumnavigation by bringing one surviving vessel and a mere 18 men from the fleet's original complement back to Seville, just over three years after the expedition's departure. Conclusion, west about to the Orient was doable, but marginal. The Portuguese, meanwhile, energetically opens the Indian Ocean. Vasco da Gama reached the major entrepôt of Calicut in today's Kerala in 1498. The Portuguese emphasis on trade rather than conquest no doubt made their arrival more welcome. Literal states may also have been missing the Chinese, 
who had undertaken seven extended fleet deployments around the Indian Ocean in the first three or four decades of the 15th century, trading as they went. Dynastic change and renewed pressure from Mongols to the north, it was time to protect China with a great war, caused the Chinese to withdraw as suddenly as they had appeared. From the Indian Ocean, the Portuguese pressed on into Southeast Asia, reaching the Moluccas in 1512, and even visiting China's Pearl River Delta in 1513, yes, the same year in which Balboa was gazing, uh, with or without wild surmise, on the ocean lying beyond America. The arrival, soon after, of Magellan's expedition from the east prompted another round of Spanish-Portuguese diplomacy, aimed at complementing Tordesillas by deconflicting their activities on the other side of the world. The obvious answer was to use the same meridian as ran down the Atlantic, but extended round the back of the globe to give each country a neat hemisphere. It looked as though this would put the Moluccas just in the Spanish half. But no one could really fix lines of longitude with much accuracy. The Portuguese offered a major sum of money, and the Treaty of Zaragoza in 1529 ran the line down just to the east of the islands. Not but what the Spanish in following decades infringed it, uh, to settle the Philippines further north, apparently reckoning that uh, since those islands had no spices, the Portuguese would not much care. Northern European powers were naturally anxious to get in on the act. The English and French were never going to acknowledge this cosy Iberian carve-up of the expanding globe. But they were late to the party, and their initial exploratory efforts not brilliantly well conceived. Within five years of Columbus, Henry VII of England dispatched the Genoese John Cabot across the North Atlantic to discover that Canadian latitudes were too cold for permanent settlement. Though they soon proved hospitable to a huge, seasonal, cod-fishing and salting industry. Jacques Cartier opened the St Lawrence waterway to the Great Lakes for France, founding Quebec. 16th-century efforts to find a northwest passage to the Pacific, or a northeast equivalent around Russia, failed, though in both cases generating wealth from furs. Poor Sir Hugh Willoughby and his crew were found frozen on their frozen ship in the Barents Sea in 1554, but another part of his expedition made it to the Moscow court of Ivan the Terrible, the man who during his 50-year reign, the latter half of the 16th century, conquered Carnates to the east and thus established the Russian Empire and opened a lucrative fur trade between Moscow and London. But the English, French and increasingly the Dutch came to realise that their best option, apart from preying on Spanish treasure ships, was to follow the Portuguese round Africa to challenge for the Indian and Asian markets. As we shall see in the next episode, this was brilliantly successful, with the Dutch Golden Age giving way in due course to British and French empires and the final discovery of the remoter parts of Oceania. But I have now strayed some distance from where this story of discovery and conquest began with the Emperor Charles V and his unprecedented wealth and power. Charles was cut from a very different cloth from Francis and Henry, his contemporaries on the thrones of France and England. 
Of course, he did opulent display, as all monarchs of the era had to. But charismatic he was not. Like most Habsburgs, he was distinctly odd-looking, with an excessively prominent chin, the product of generations of inbreeding. The problem would only get worse in later generations. Titian, the Venetian painter, manages to present Charles as uh, lantern-jawed. A century or so later, the deformity of the Emperor Leopold I can no longer be disguised. His coinage makes it all too clear why he was known as Hogmouth. And the War of Spanish Succession was triggered by the death by starvation in 1700 of the last of the Spanish Habsburg line. Charles II of Spain was simply unable to eat, or, unsurprisingly, to procreate. So Charles V was no ladies' man. He was also serious and devout, raised at the court of his aunt Margaret in the in the Low Countries with a strong sense of service and mission. He is seldom portrayed without what seems to be a dead sheep hanging round his neck, the insignia of the chivalric order of the Golden Fleece, dedicated to knightly ideals and the defence of Christendom against the infidel. From an early age, Charles knew his purpose in life was, like a latter-day Charlemagne, to restore the universal monarchy in partnership with the Church of Rome. The dutiful public persona was matched in his private life. Extraordinarily for the time, he seems to have been both devoted and faithful to his wife, the Portuguese Isabella, throughout their thirteen years of marriage though there were bastards before and after, including the famous Don John of Austria, hero of Lepanto. When Isabella died, Charles never remarried, and dressed in black for the rest of his days. These he closed out in the monastery of Juste in Extremadura, after abdicating his various thrones and offices in 1556, worn out by decades of struggle against France, against Turks, and against Protestants. The first thrones to come Charles's way were those of Spain and therefore Sicily, Naples and Sardinia as well, on the death of his grandfather Ferdinand, yes, the Ferdinand of Catholic monarchs fame, in 1516. Having at that stage neither Spanish nor familiarity with the culture, it must have helped the youthful Charles arriving at the Spanish court from Flanders to find there his brother Ferdinand, even though the latter had no German. To remedy that deficiency, Ferdinand was soon heading the other way, back to Flanders. And when the Emperor Maximilian died in 1519 and Charles succeeded him as Holy Roman Emperor and Archduke of Austria, Ferdinand was deputed to run Austria on his behalf. Soon enough, Ferdinand also picked up the thrones of Hungary and Bohemia, Following the death of his brother-in-law Laios in 1526 after the catastrophic defeat by the Turks at the Battle of Mohacs in 1526. More about that later. As time went by, Ferdinand came to deputise more and more for Charles on empire business. Charles, for his part, had first to focus on the growing turmoil in northern Italy as successive Valois kings sought to wrest control from the Habsburgs, and successive popes sought to exploit the return of conflict to reassert the power of the papacy and expand its territorial footprint. Preeminent amongst these was the ferociously ambitious Julius II, 
who was Pope from 1503 to 1513, who determined to restore the decayed city of Rome as the centre of Christendom and rebuild the papacy's temporal leadership by vigorous diplomacy and even more vigorous campaigning. As warrior priest, he led his forces in full armour, siding with the Emperor Maximilian against the French in Lombardy and confronting the Venetians, who had encroached on the papal states in Emilia-Romana. Julius founded the Vatican Museums, and to him must also be credited two of the standout achievements of the Italian Renaissance, Raphael's frescoes in the papal apartments, or stanzi, and Michelangelo's ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. It was three decades before Michelangelo would be back to paint The Last Judgment, an altogether gloomier work, reflecting altogether gloomier times. For Julius's success in restoring Rome's strength and status was not sustained by his successors. The Medici Pope Clement VII made the fatal error, along with Milan, Venice and Florence, of turning against the Emperor and allying himself with France. This strategy came unstuck at the Battle of Pavia in 1525, when Charles V not only defeated but captured Francis I. The Italian wars would rumble on for another thirty years, but from this point on Habsburg mastery of northern Italy was largely assured. For the papacy, worse was to come. The victorious imperial army, finding themselves unpaid, mutinied and forced their commanders to march on Rome. Despite heroic resistance by the Swiss Guard, the walls were breached in 1527, and the mutinous troops, many of them Protestant German mercenaries, proceeded to sack the city. Thousands were massacred, and such was the devastation that a city of some 55,000 was reduced to a mere 10,000. The Pope was now in Charles's pocket. Time for Charles to refocus his attention north of the Alps. For... After his great victory at Mohax, the Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent had captured Pest and was now posing a direct threat to Vienna itself. Even worse, the Catholic faith that was the very foundation of Charles's life and rule was itself now in real danger, following the extraordinary success of the assault launched upon it by an obscure German priest called Martin Luther. Do join me for episode 10, in which that story is taken up. And do remember that if you feel the need to shout at me or to offer me advice or any other form of feedback, I should be very glad to hear from you at nickwhitney, that's ten letters all lowercase, at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.